last part of verse 5, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. And I think we've already spent three Sundays on that sentence. And I just want to say one more thing about that, that you have anointed my head with oil. You know, when we, when we look at this chapter, and we've said this a few times, is that the scene here is, is that David is on the run. He's in a very difficult place. His son has usurped his authority and is leading a conspiracy against him. His son is actually seeking for David's death. And David, as a father, is going through all of this. He's going through this hardship, this, this, this uh, I, feelings that I can't even imagine that, that a dad goes through because I have not gone through that. And his son is pursuing him. And here he is, there's a table that God has put before David in the presence of his enemies. That word presence there we talked about is like in, literally in the sphere of influence, in the place where they, it's a place of vulnerability. And so David here is saying, while I'm in this place, I'm in the house of the Lord. And we said this a few weeks ago, is that when in the Orient, in the Middle East, when someone invited someone to their house, they not only would provide food and um, hospitality, but they would also provide security and safety. They would actually be people outside the front door that are, that are guarding the house, that the, that the guest would never be at any time in danger of his life. And this is what David is saying. I'm in the house of the Lord. I'm at the table. And, and um, Yahweh, Yahweh the shepherd is also Yahweh the protector host. And he's protecting me at the table. And I can eat in peace. And I can enjoy, I can have communion at, and this is so important, what Pastor Adam said, is that our communion with God is at the mercy seat, at this covering. And the law is inside, and it's covered, it's been paid for. The blood of the, of the sacrifice we put on the mercy seat. And Jesus said, I'll meet you there. And that's the only place I'm going to meet you. I'm not going to meet you at, in your good works. I'm not going to meet you at commandment number 10 when you've got all the commandments right. I'm going to meet you at the mercy seat. And I'm going to meet you, I'm going to commune with you there a beautiful thing, and this is not the time to talk about it, but I think sometimes we don't understand that the whole focus of our relationship and our Christianity is not to do something for God or be something for God. Our whole focus and the whole focus of Christ in our life is that we would have communion with him. Think of that. He wants to have communion with you. He thinks about you. Jesus said at the communion, he said, with great desiring, I have desired to eat the supper with you. Double, double word there in the Greek. And the Greek word there is this passion, epithumia. I've so passionately desired to commune with you. And I was thinking about that this morning. I was just thinking, you know, like, do I realize how much Christ wants to commune with me? How he seeks me out. How he seeks you out in your sin and your failure and your limitations. When you blow it, he's seeking you. Adam and Eve blew it in the garden. And, this, and the seeking shepherd comes after them. Where are you? Where are you? Not to, not, 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 to, not to condemn or to destroy, but to reconcile. He says, where are you, Adam and Eve? Where are you? There's a beautiful passage I saw for the first time this week, and I shared it yesterday before we went out on outreach. Mark chapter 1. It's a beautiful verse there. And it says that Jesus is in ministry, right? And, and there's like de- people that are demon-possessed, and they're sick. And it's in the evening. It's a whole day of ministry and serving and and Christ is, is doing these miracles. And then at the evening, Christ is in this house where he's staying with some, some other, other friends and, and other believers. And it says that the whole city shows up at his front door with all these demonic people, right? Demon-possessed people and all these people that have all these problems and sicknesses, right? 
I mean, we, some of us live in these communities that that's not even possible. And if it was possible, if you had demon-possessed people showing up at your door, I don't think you and I would be coming to the door, opening it up, and being so welcome. Maybe we'd be bringing something else in our arms, in our hands, to greet these people and let them know that there's something in our hands <laughs> to protect ourselves with. And so Jesus, it says that Jesus healed them all. Think of that. Jesus healed them all. Jesus healed them all. He spoke to them. He healed them. And then and, and right after that, right after that, as that's happening, it says that late at night, Jesus departs his, he departs where he's staying and he goes into the mountain to pray. You know, that's another thing that's really on my heart that, that, that we'll be doing more of in this church and that's just, just praying, just seeking the Lord's face, prayer. Like, prayer is not me trying to twist God's arm to do something for us. It's just us getting in tune what the mind of God is and what his will is. That's what prayer is. It's not me petitioning something, although that does happen, right? And so this is this communion, communion at the table that's in the presence of our enemies. And so Jesus in chapter three of chapter Mark, of the book of Mark, it says that, so Jesus goes to this mountain and he's in this mountain and in in Mark chapter three, he calls his disciples up that he was going to ordain, these 12 men. He calls them up to the mountain and it says to himself. And this is the perspective I want us to understand about Psalm 23, the communion of this chapter. Jesus calls these disciples to himself. And there's a purpose clause there in the Greek. And it usually, a purpose clause in the Greek is just a big fancy word in the English grammar to me for the purpose of. Jesus calls the disciples up to him to be with him in the mountain so that, that's the purpose clause, they would be with him. There's another purpose clause after that. But we always miss that one. It says, so that he could be with them. Jesus calls us to himself. God's primary calling in your life is not that we would do something for God or that we would give something to God, although that's part of our nature. Our primary call, the primary call of God in my life and in your life is that you would be with him. Just dwell in his presence. Do we know how to do that? I feel like in some church services and some things that, that like we always, something always has to happen. But what if we just sat and dwelt in his presence and just cultivated like and listened to the Holy Spirit and and not necessarily feel like we have to do something, but just listen and be quiet, you know, like a family in a, in a living room. Sometimes when you're sitting in a living room, not in my house because I got a five-year-old, but <laughs> sometimes when you're in a living room and there's kids and there's family there, it gets kind of quiet and everybody's kind of quiet for a minute and nobody feels like they have to talk. That's how it is with God and communion with God. Communion just means fellowship. It means communion. It means fellowship. Where God just wants to serve us. Where God wants to serve us. In the Ukrainian language, there's the word for church service, and it's translated God's serving. And in the Ukrainian mind, which is very Catholic, very Orthodox, um, it's a different kind of Catholicism than in Western Europe. Um, there's, this, there's this thinking that when I go to church, I have to be doing something for God because it's called, in Ukrainian, translated to English, serving God. But if you, re- if you look at that word carefully, you can also understand it this way. That is God serving you. That's God washing your feet. That's God ministering to you. He's setting a table for us. He's giving us something to eat that we will be sustained. Communion with God. Communion with God. And this is a big point I want to bring up here is that David said, my, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. These are two phrases that are so intimately connected. Is that you anoint my head with oil. You know, when, when someone would come into a, a Middle Eastern home at the time, um, they, the, they would usually require a lot of travel. And the host would pour oil, olive oil, over the head of the individual. And that would 
that would really kind of cool the individual down, cool down. It would also, it would also kind of uh, um, deal with any dust on the face, and it would just be something that would be very soothing and very relaxing. And so he would be in this house with this host, and as he's there, his cup is running over. And I want to talk about cup, our cups running over, and this is really the main point of what I want to say today, is that when we understand the anointing, and the anointing that is on you, and the head always speaks of the authority, the decision-making, that part of us that is guiding, that part of us that's thinking, that part of us that's discerning, that part of us that's really our authority. Because your authority as an individual is based on your free will. You make decisions. Nobody can make you make those decisions. Um, There should be no government or anybody in a person's life that makes a decision for them that we make these decisions with God. This is our authority. This is our leadership that we have. And God says here, David says here in Psalm 23, you've anointed my head with, a, with, a, with the oil. You've given, you've put an anointing. And the anointing always refers to the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And again, we've said some of this is repetitious, but when something was set apart in the, in the temple that was for the holy use of God in a temple and not to be used for common things, like in someone's kitchen, but this was an object that was set aside for the, strictly for the use of God, and it had authority, and it had a job. When that was set apart and sanctified, it would be anointed with a special oil. And this oil, in the, this oil that was in the tabernacle actually had a scent to it, and it was a beautiful smell. So when something was anointed, it had a sweet smell to it. When Jesus his last seven days on the earth, he comes into, he comes into Jerusalem and Mary breaks this, this alabaster box over his head and it's this, oil, it's this anointing oil. And it was a kind of an oil, it was kind of a fragrance that was so strong and so powerful that the fragrance would last up to seven days. And so the last seven days of Jesus' life, everywhere he's going, he's casting the, he's casting the criminals and the money changers out of the house of God and he smells this beautiful smell. He's standing before Pilate and Herod and there's this beautiful fragrance of the anointing that is on Christ because Christ is going to his death to lay down his life as our sacrifice to pour out all of his blood and he's anointed and there's this anointing and when we understand that we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, when we understand that our mind has been set apart to think with God for the word of God and you know how we, underst- how we, how we experience practical sanctification? It's not me trying harder. It just means... In, in John chapter 17, remember this, God sets us apart by his word, not by my activity, not by my prayer life, that's important, not by my evangelism, not by anything I'm doing in the church, it's just by the word. And so when you and I read the word and we say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, it's not happening in my life yet, but I say yes to you, yes, I put the yes on the table. And when we do that, our mind begins to be sanctified. And these are just a few things that we've said over the last few weeks, that when our mind is set apart by the word of God and we start thinking with the word of God wake up in the morning with the word of God go to bed with the word of God at night pray go for prayer walks if you can and let the let the word of God set your mind apart and when that happens guess what happens when something's set apart for God's use what is it it's anointed with oil it's it's anointed with oil it's anointed with the Holy Spirit and what I want to say is is that when the when 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 the Holy Spirit is allowed to come into our heart and our minds in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, then there's anointing in our thinking. There's an anointing in our thought life. 
There's an anointing in my emotions. There's an anointing in the way I make decisions in the five parts of my soul. And it's no longer me trying to figure my life out and what am I going to do and how am I going to make this happen? But it's, there's an anointing there. And we can come in, we can meet other believers that are anointed. And some of my most, my favorite times is like these quiet times where we're just like in the Bible school room or back there on Wednesday nights and we're sitting there, we're just fellowshipping. And if you've been with us on a Wednesday night, it's just, there's always this sweet anointing. It's, it's this discussion and prayer and we talk and there's a word that's being shared and we walk out and it's like time goes so fast because there's an anointing there. When there's an anointing and when there's oil, there's no friction and there's no scraping and there's no injury. The anointing in our, in our life, the anointing in my thought life means that I have the presence of the Holy Spirit. I want to look at that. What does it mean to have our cup run over? Let's back up to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. And that food smells good, doesn't it? Oh, I don't want to distract you guys. Second Kings chapter 4, verse 1. Beautiful story. I read about this. And you know, I was studying this. I was like, Lord, just show me what this means. And, and so the Lord began to speak to me. And I began to think about scriptures. as being to put scriptures together. And I said, well, I've never seen this verse like this. And so Second Kings chapter 4, Elisha, who is the disciple of Elijah, right? In Second Kings chapter 4, um, is in a situation here where verse 1, a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets. Now, I want to say something about this certain woman. Certain because she's a specific, significant woman. Do you know who she was? She was most likely the wife of Obadiah. Obadiah was a servant in the King Ahab and Je- Jezebel's courts. Remember King Ahab and Jezebel wanted to exterminate all the prophets of Israel? They were hunting them down. And so Obadiah, which was a servant, he was also the prophet, is serving in, in, in um, Ahab, King Ahab's court. And what he secretly does is he hears this plan that all the prophets of, of Israel are going to be wiped out by Jezebel and by Ahab's strategies here. So he secretly, him and his wife, Obadiah and this certain woman, secretly make a plan where they hide all of these prophets. I think it's about 100 prophets. And these are prophets that were special men that were part of a Bible school that we can read about later in another portion of Scripture. But Elijah was discipling these guys. And so these, these prophets are being hidden by, by Obadiah and his wife. And so this certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, your servant, my husband, is dead. So Obadiah has died. And this is his wife, his widow. And then you know that your servant feared the Lord and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. And there were laws, there were Jewish laws we don't need to get into today, but they would, have, they would be up to three to six years they would have to be paying off this debt. So Elisha said to her, what, do you, what shall I do for you? And I love this because sometimes we have problems and we bring the problem to God, we bring the problem to, to the Lord in prayer and the Lord's like, so what do you want me to do? It's like, God, isn't it obvious? I think God wants us to define sometimes what we want him to do. And he says, what do you want me to do? And tell me, what do you have in the house? And this is beautiful. And this is the first point I want to start here with. Is that Psalm 23 is a story, is a psalm about God's provision and God's protection and God's presence. And you know where it starts with? It always starts with what we already have. This is a very important point. Because when there's need in our life, when there's dysfunction, or when there's, we're not meeting the cut, when we're falling behind, or we don't, we don't feel like we're, we, do, we have what it takes, God's not asking us 
to go out and find something else. He says, what do you have in your house already? And what does she have in the house? She says, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a, a jar of oil. All I have is this jar of oil. We don't know what size this jar is, big or large. And it's very possible that this widow lost probably m- most of her furniture and, uh, and things in her house because maybe she's selling the stuff just to feed her family. There was a time in Ukraine where, where um, the gas was shut off by, by Russia pe- the, during the Soviet times because Ukraine was not following like the, the, like the political agenda of what Russia wanted to. And so they just shut the gas off. And Gosh and I were living there at the time, and it was the middle of January, and it was freezing, and there was no hot water. And so, um, <laughs> I don't know why that story came to my mind, but the maidservant here says, I have nothing in my house but a jar of oil. And he said, go borrow vessels. And it's interesting because this jar of oil was something that, oh, I know what I wanted to say about the story, is that Ukrainians at that time had nothing. And they had no money. And so what they did was many of them were selling furniture. They were selling their personal possessions. And they were actually using some of their furniture to put in their fireplaces and to keep their house warm. And this was probably a very desperate time in in this woman's life. And so she she goes to the man of God and and he says, what do you have in your house? I have a jar of oil. And in verse verse 3, and then he said, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all of your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not just gather a few. And when you've come in, you have shut the door behind you and your sons. And I want to say, I want to just say something here that Elisha says to the woman, go borrow vessels. And don't borrow just a few, but borrow as many as you can from all your neighbors. I'm just trying to picture, picture the situation. Going to our neighbors, knocking on their door and asking them for vessels, cups, pans, pots, anything that can, you know, jars, plastic containers, Maybe the a little bit, maybe it's a, a little bit of an embarrassing situation. Maybe it's kind of awkward, you know. And I think that this is the way it is sometimes with the way God works is that God puts us in a place where we step out and we're asking. And it also what it does is with it makes her accountable to the neighbors that God's going to do something and the neighbor is going to know about it. And so the neighbors here um, give them all these ve- empty vessels and do not just gather a few. And when you have come in, shut the door. And I think that's so important. That speaks about intimacy with God. That means close the door. A beautiful study in the Bible is to do the study of the doctrine of the shut door. How God only works with the door shut. God closes the door. Jesus would close the door on Peter and John when he would do this miracle, this amazing miracle. Uh, many, many times the door had to be shut for, for prayer and focus and concentration and communion with God. Elisha was saying to this woman, you need to go into your house with your sons, with your family, and commune with God, and trust, and, and wait on the Lord, and bring all these vessels, and then when you do that, after you've shut the door, then pour into all of those vessels, and set aside the full ones. Pour out, pour out into these vessels, and set aside the full ones. And when she had set the door behind her and her sons, who brought the vessels to her, she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full, as she said to her son, bring me another vessel. She said, he said to her, there is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. What's the, what does that story mean? Why are we reading that? And what does that relate here to Psalm 23? The oil represents the Holy Spirit. I believe the woman here is a picture of the church. I believe Elisha is a picture of God in this situation. 
And Elisha says to the woman who is a picture of the church, who's in a state sometimes of, of maybe difficulty and, 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 and trouble. And the church comes to God. We come to God and say, Lord, help us. You know, we're in trouble. We have this great need. And we are in, we're in, we are, um, there is this, that we are threatened that we're going to be in, in slavery and bondage. We're going to be losing our two sons. And this is really a picture. And I thought about this this morning. This is really a picture of God speaking to the church and the church gathering vessels, closing the doors, and pouring out what it already has into these vessels that it gathered, that, that the woman gathered by faith. And when, and, and, and you know that every vessel was full. There was not a vessel there that was not full. And so if there was 42 vessels there, then 42 vessels would have been full. And, the, and then the oil ceases. And this is a picture of the supply of God that will always fill the vessel that's brought to it, to, uh, to the church, to the woman, to the woman's house, that, that the, the oil be poured out and that vessel will be full. Think about what that looked like. I don't know about you, but I think in every house, I know in my house, uh, underneath the sink and there, underneath the counter, there is this cupboard that has just a multitude of just random colored coffee cups and, and thermoses and things like that. And it's just like all very r- different sizes, colors, different languages on it. And I think that that's kind of look what it looked like in this woman's house as she's gathering all of these vessels, different sizes, different colors. Maybe, you know, like, I don't know if there was other, other languages, but there's all these vessels. And you know what these vessels speak of? I just, it's just, it's something new I want to just kind of say to you. I think vessels don't speak here about like me having a capacity to believe God for something. Vessels here always speak about a person. It speaks about people, that we're called vessels in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we're, we're referred to as vessels. In the Old Testament, um, vessels and objects were anointed, but in the New Testament, God's not anointing and sanctifying objects. He is he is sanctifying and setting aside and using people because now the Holy Spirit is inside of us. Old Testament, we talked about this in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit comes down in Acts chapter 2, we read this, we read this scripture where it says that the Holy Spirit rushed in like a mighty rushing wind. And I think that the idea there is like we get the idea that, that this like a hurricane wind comes in and just blows everybody down. No, that's not what it says in the Greek. It means that the Holy Spirit rushed in like a lover would run to, his, to, to uh, her lover and would run in with this great passion and joy and excitement to be together. And there's this embrace the Holy Spirit um, rushes into these disciples and to these apostles because this is the beginning and the birth of the church. And this is the picture of Christ's communion and desire with us. And when we close that door and we begin to fellowship with him, like in Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 3, like we read, then we begin to, we begin to um, have communion with God. We have this intimacy with God and there's this filling that comes into our life. There's this there's this communion, this spirituality, this anointing that we begin to sense because God is present. And so this, these vessels are brought in. And I thought, what are the vessels in the church? And I think it's people. And just like there's probably random different colors and sizes of these vessels, it's the way it is with church. I think the church of Christ is very diverse. I was talking to this organization this past week and you know, we got on the topic of like a multi-ethnic churches and how so many pastors are really pushing and trying to have a multi-ethnic church and (laughs) I just thought like you know about our church 
And I just had a question I wanted to ask you guys. Like, how many of you in this room speak another language that's not English? Just raise your hand. Raise your hand if you speak a language that's not English. Okay. Um, I don't know how to do this, but I, I wonder how many languages are in the room here, right? Like, let me just name some languages that I think I know. I know for Spanish, for sure. Um, my wife's Polish. She speaks Polish. Pastor Adam's South African. He speaks Afrikaans. Um, Zulu. <laughs> Let's see, what other languages do we have here? Um, anybody speak a language that, that I didn't name yet? Um, Japanese, there's another, number five. Um, anybody else speak another language here that, our brother over here, Italian, right? Italian, because he's from, his family's Italian, right? That's seven. French, okay, that's eight. Am I missing anybody here? My wife and I speak some other languages, so I figure that, like, probably, like, in our church, there's probably, we could safely say that maybe 13 or 14 different languages that can be spoken in our church. Now, is that wild or what? <laughs> that's amazing, isn't it? And that's, why is that? Because when, because, and I'm going to bring it down to the practical level here. If you're not following me, then just listen, you'll get it, okay? We are like the woman. God speaks to us. We're in a crisis, right? We're in this place where, like, God, unless you move, we, we feel like we have this debt to the system. And sometimes we feel that way. We feel like we got this debt to the system. And you know something? The only thing that we owe this world is the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, it says this, that, that uh, I am not ashamed to preach the gospel, that, which is the power of God unto salvation, right? We see, churches seek for power. Like, okay, let's just go out and preach the gospel. And that's powerful. And you know what? The, you know, and so let, let no man owe anyone anything but to love him. Our debt to society our debt to this world is to give them the gospel. And how does that work? We just go out and we gather vessels. I was thinking about, I was thinking about Adam, um, Andrew this morning. Andrew didn't even really necessarily know how to evangelize. So he goes to, to Peter, right? And he goes, Peter, just come and see. And that's what we do. We're like, you and I, we're like, we are the church. We're like the, we're like the mother here. And like, we're going out into places and we're just saying, we're going to people who are vessels and saying, look, I don't know how to explain it, but God is moving. God is in our midst. There's something that happens together when we get together in fellowship, when we come to Bible school, when we're here Wednesday nights or whenever we're together, there's something that happens and it's like the presence of God. And you just gotta come and see it, right? And that's how that works with evangelism. This is how it works with, with the woman here. She's saying, just go out and grab vessels different kinds of vessels and these vessels come in and what happens the holy spirit begins to pour out because you and i have a have a have a container of oil we have a jar of oil in our life and that's the holy spirit and he's in you and that's the that's the authority that the believer has like when you and i walk into circumstances we are anointed we have authority with god and the devil has to obey that authority the entire the whole world, the supernatural world of principalities and powers and all the things that we don't see and understand all are based on this one thing. They, they, they need to, they recognize authority and they have to submit to authority. And if it's not the proper authority, they won't submit to it. And we see that in Acts chapter 9, the sons of Sceva, right? And, and so like, I, I just want to keep it to this and I want to close with this, is that you and I have a cruise of oil. We have something that God has given us. That's the Holy Spirit in us. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where it says, we read this the other day, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and he has put his seal upon us and given his spirit, the oil, 
in our hearts as a guarantee that we are saved, we are, we are secure, that we are in Christ, and that oil is in you. And what do we do? I don't know. Sometimes it seems like we're in a crisis. We think, I don't even know what I could say to anybody right now. I'm just trying to figure my own life out. You know what? Just take a little oil that you got in church or got a little oil that you got in gathering together or in your personal life and just pour it into somebody's life, even if it's just a little bit, and just pour it in. So, well, I'm, I didn't go to Bible school. I didn't finish Bible school. Just take what you got. Like the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and I know I'm speaking a little longer this morning, I'm going to finish. She, takes, she took the little bit that she knew about Christ, and she went into the city, and she said, come meet the man who told me everything, everything I ever did. Take that little bit of oil and pour it. Pour it on your family. Pour it on family members, you know. Pour it on your neighbors. We were yesterday in a, in a neighborhood in Magnolia. There, people were just moving in. I felt like we were just going into that neighborhood with, with these jars of oil. And we're pouring them into people's lives. And this one guy said to me, he was born in New York, no New York accent. He had a strictly Texan accent. I said, you are truly converted. And he said to me, no one has, no church has ever come to my house. He said, we've been here since June. And we've gone to all these churches and nobody's ever come to our house to tell us, you know, to, 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 to talk with us about God, right? We go, into play, we go into people's lives and we pour out. And this is where I want to just mention about this picture that we looked at. You know, when we're pouring out into, into our kids, we're pouring out into people that are in our lives, like the Martinez's have this beautiful ministry uh, to, to orphans and to like, um, you know, and they can share it sometime. Just amazing. Just pouring into people's lives. And sometimes you don't know, even know what's going to happen with it. But pour. And when you pour, guess what happens? And this is the promise from God. Luke chapter 6, verse 38, it says this, that if you, and we, when we read this verse, Luke 6, verse 38, a lot of times it's used to describe a giving. Like if you give, God's going to give you more. And a lot of times it's used to like, in, in, in the realm of money. But here it says in Luke chapter 6, it, it, it's just a simple word, give. Like when you give, God gives it back to you. But he gives it back to you more in abundance. He gives, it, he gives it so much that it's like overflowing, pressed down, overflowing. And that overflow is our cup that's overflowing. Like when we are filled with communion with God, like when we're filled with that communion, when we're fellowshipping with the word of God in, in the spirit, then there's this filling and the overflow is really what gets poured out into other people's lives. If my cup is, is not full, then I'm giving people my flesh. I want to close with a story. My wife and I, when we lived in Ukraine, of course, you know, we've just kind of really lived on people's generosity and donations, and, and that's really how we lived over there. And um, I remember one year we came back, maybe a couple of years before we had moved back to the States, and my wife, you know, um, met uh, someone in Baltimore, a woman who had, she was married to one of, the, one of the richest men in America and had recently gone through a divorce, came to our church in Baltimore, and became a good friend of my wife. And so, um, so she buys my wife some shoes, right? A couple pairs of nice pairs of shoes. And then so Gosha comes back, you know, with me back to Ukraine in the fall. And so Gosha just gives the shoes that she has to some of the ladies in the church because it was a very hard time in Ukraine at that time. And so, like, we go back. I think it was sometime in the winter. And then, like, she gives, people are giving her more shoes, Right? And so she comes back to Ukraine, and she gives more shoes out. And it got to the point that when we had moved back to the States, that she had been, give, people were giving her shoes, and she was giving people shoes out. Like, it literally turned, I'm no joke, I wish I had a picture of it, but our garage 
in our house in America, here in, in Baltimore, was full of just bags of shoes. <laughs> and it was like crazy. I was like, gosh, what are we going to do with all these shoes and all these clothes? Because the more that people would give to my wife, because she got such a gift to give, um, she was just giving it out because like, I want to bless other people. And the more that, the more that, 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 that was being poured into her and into our lives, the more we were able to bless other people. And you know something? We can't live in a sense of like a poverty mentality, like, oh, I can't live. I can't follow God. I can't take steps of faith because I'm broke. I'm poor. God, that never, ever has ever stopped God before. And if we want to see God do something great, just pour out. And when you pour out, God pours back in and he keeps pouring back in. And we keep pouring out and we become a vessel of his gospel. We become a vessel of his grace. We become a vessel of his goodness and of his blessings. And as soon as the vessels are not there to pour into, then the oil stops. And that's how it works in our lives. That's why we go out preaching, discipling, meeting people, and just spending time with people, loving them, getting love back, and and this fellowship. Why? Because we get to pour out something that God poured into our lives, and our cup is running over. Christianity is not this thing where, oh, I'm just begging God all the time for this thing. Well, if we're, in a, if we're in a chronic state of that, try giving. Don't give a lot. I'm not saying, I'm not asking you for your money. I'm just saying, try giving to the Lord. Try giving to, just giving like a little bit and see how the Lord adds to that. Why? Because when you and I allow ourselves to be vessels in the house of the Lord, walking by faith obedience and what he's commanded us to do, and we can be trusted by God to be a vessel, a conduit, a, a venue, a highway of the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God. This is, this is something that always works. So, take, so when we think about the gospel, we think about what God's doing. And I was just thinking this morning, in the, you know, uh, the last couple of weeks, last few weeks, it's been really more and more on my heart. Um, the, the, the nation of Mexico and I'm not moving to Mexico don't worry I'm not making an announcement here but I just think more and more about the, the, the people that we meet and we were at this pizza place last night and it was so fun because like everybody spoke Spanish there and we had a waitress come to us and she just like she's asking us questions in Spanish like this is the normal thing to do right and we're like Pastor Adam and I are trying to speak Spanish back and you know, the lady gives him something. He's like, mucho grace. <laughs> you know, like, that's Pastor Adam's English, I mean, Spanish right there. And we went with a, a couple weeks ago, we went to this El Kiosco or something like that down in Old Town Magnolia. And we go in there and everybody's speaking Spanish. And so I try to speak Spanish, right? And they're all just like, they're like, you know, don't even try. So I'm leaving, I'm leaving the place. And I'm saying, hasta la vista. And they're like, you know, like, you know, that's not what you say. That's what Arnold Schwarzenegger says. That's not what you say in Spanish. So, but I was thinking about these people, right? And I was thinking about like, you know, we have like five, six hours from us is a town called McAllen. It's a Texan town. And on the other side of that town is a city called Reynosa. And I was looking at the map and I said, yeah, I just thought, you know what? I want to go there and I want to do a mission trip because there's vessels there. There's vessels in Ukraine. There's vessels in Finland. There's vessels in Africa. There's vessels like Solomon and I went to Poland. There's vessels there. And we talked to them. And they're different colors and they're different languages and they're different sizes and different capacities. But we bring it in. And that's why we're so rich. 
because we don't live as a church unto ourselves, right? We're not here as a lake, we're a river where people come in and go out. They come in and we send them out and that's just how it works in the, in the church. And I was just thinking, God, there are people that are, in, that, are, that, are, that are Spanish speakers and it's just the Lord. It's just my heart's been, been breaking for these people. And I said, you know what? Lord, give us something there. And we can just close in prayer.